Hi, everybody, and welcome to the February Lymphedema Patient Roundtable hosted by LymphoPress. My name is Alexa Ercolano. I am a lymphedema patient. I'm also the Marketing and Communications Associate here at LymphoPress. And we're so, so happy you're spending your Valentine's Day Eve with us tonight, our little Galentine's panel is here and we're so excited to talk with you and we've got a special guest with us tonight so while you all are logging on let us know in the chat where you are and and who's here and I'm going to introduce our galentines so we have Angela Jones lipolymphedema patient and health coach we've got Catherine Rosenberg pediatric cancer survivor secondary lymphedema patient advocate and as always math teacher, got to say it. <laughs> We've got Karen Ashforth, certified lymphedema therapist and fibrosis queen. Amanda Sobe, lymphedema patient, certified personal trainer, nutritionist, and madam president and professional advisory chair of the Lymphedema Association of Manitoba. Hi, Amanda. And finally, we have special guest, Sarah Bramblett. Sarah is an incredible patient advocate living with lymphedema and lipedema. She's board chair of the Lymphedema Advocacy Group and co-chair of the Obesity Action Coalition Access to Care Committee. And we are so, so elated to have her with us tonight because she is going to talk with us about the Lymphedema Treatment Act. So if you have questions about that, get ready to plunk those in the Q&A box because we will get to those later this evening. So as always, we like to remind you that we cannot answer specific medical questions. We are not your lymphedema therapists or doctors, but we are your pals and we're happy to share our experiences with you. So drop any questions in the question and answer box and we're gonna get started. And it is Valentine's Day Eve and a big hot topic is navigating relationships with lymphedema. It's kind of a challenging thing sometimes because there's that question of, when you're in the dating world, when do you even bring up the lymphedema? How do you talk about it? What do you do? And, and how can your partner or your family members or your friends, any relationships in your life, how can they support you as someone living with lymphedema? So I'm going to stop rambling and ask any of the ladies on the panel if they have any insights or experience to share on the topic of relationships and lymphedema. Sarah, I think you have a fun story. <laughs> I do. I didn't, I didn't want to like, interrupt if anyone else. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was mentioning when we were chatting before we got started that um, actually, um, you know, he's my boyfriend, but we've been together 15 years. So partner, whatever we want to call it, you know, we're going to see each other next month. We're currently uh, long distance. We, we met um, here. I live in Miami. We both met in Miami 15 years ago. Um, and I was saying it's kind of cute. We we met online. This was before there was like dating apps. There was actually like a website we we met on. Um, and so we were talking, like emailing and stuff. Um, yeah, emailing even, not even. <laughs> I think I had a flip phone at the time, so we weren't texting a lot. Um, <laughs> that seems longer than 15 years ago, doesn't it? Like you don't think we haven't had a, okay. So, um, but in some of our emails and getting to know each other, I mean, we broke all the rules. I think one of the first questions he asked me was about politics. And then I think we mentioned, you know, money or something. So then um, somehow he asked me like if I wanted kids or something. And I said, eh, you know, at that point in my life, I was already like 30, 32. I said, eh, you know, I've got a lot going on. And I said, just, I probably shouldn't, you know, like pass my genes on to anyone else. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, I've got some, you know, some conditions that, you know, I just probably shouldn't do that. And so I told him I have lymphedema. And so then he looked it up. Like all of a sudden he was like reading back information where he had Googled it. And I thought it was like so cute that he had like Googled it and he was trying to learn about it. And I mean, once we met and I mean, he's, he is, you know, very supportive. I used to joke, like I was going to teach him to massage my legs. So, <laughs> but you know, he's one of these things where he, he knows what I can do. You know, I'm very independent. I'm very go get, but he also, understands like long car rides and things like that like I do kind of have my, my limitations but um so I always told that story like I thought it was so cute he was so interested in learning about my chronic condition and everything so years later I was like what what I never really asked well, why did you why did you google it like what I mean were you really interested and so this is where it's not as sweet he said 
I wanted to make sure it wasn't fatal because I didn't want to start dating someone who was going to die. Oh, no. Okay, now it doesn't seem quite as cute, but okay. <laughs> At least what he did see didn't scare him off, though. But yeah, it's just, yeah, I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's not such a cute story. <laughs> but it's sweet that he took initiative to learn about it, too, and to... Kind and, of be a part of your your treatment now too. Learn out what helps you and and I don't know if you guys experience this, but as you educate your friends and your family, they start recognizing it in people. Mm -hmm. And so, like we've gone on a cruise, and he'll say like, "Oh," and I'm like, "Don't point." Like, no, don't you know? <laughs> like, don't point. Yes, I see it. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like, but like, don't point. <laughs> yeah, getting lymphedema but, goggles, you see it. Kinda yeah, so many people like. Yeah, exactly. And isn't that frustrating, though, because lay people can know what they're looking at, but we still have medical professionals who don't know what they're seeing. Yeah, which is a great segue for later on tonight when we talk about the lymphedema treatment. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, yeah, I think uh, having partners or family members or friends who take that that active role in learning about what our day-to-day -day lives are like and how they can best support us is, is so invaluable. You know, it really means a lot. I had when, my last round of CDT, complete decongestive therapy that I went through. My boyfriend came with me to one of the appointments so he could learn the MLD techniques and stuff too. So um, I, he has to practice a little bit more, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it is nice. But even with family and friends, does anyone on the panel, anyone else want to talk about ways that their family or friends or loved ones have, have stepped up like that or, or, or how you want them to show up for you and your, yeah, Catherine, go ahead. So, you know, with lymphedema, sometimes it does scare people, which, you know, it can be, um, a sad situation, but at the same time, you can turn that around and make it a positive situation. I did have, um, a family member who basically did not talk to me after they found out that I had lymphedema because they didn't understand why my one leg was bigger than the other one. And it was only on one side. So it made it super frustrating. Um, you know, and basically I didn't really have communication with them and it was pretty sad, but once I was able to, once I learned enough to be able to educate them about it and how it really can, you know, be impactful to understand before you make assumptions of what's actually happening, you know? And because of that, that's why I'm so open about my lymphedema in terms of, you know, as Sarah knows, because Sarah's met me in person and Alexa, you know this as well. Um, I don't wear basic compression. Like if I was wearing a flat knit garment today, it'd be my hot pink for Valentine's day because that's just the person that I am. Um, so, and it, it basically taught me to really, and learn to educate people about it because if they're not educated, they can't make a, 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 a good decision on, you know, should I stop talking to you or not? You know, like that's just a wrong, wrong thing to do, but it does happen. And sometimes you just have to kind of roll with it and really take it, take your initiative and just get people to understand what it is, why it happens to the best of their ability in you know as simplified terms as possible because we know that this disease is not simple um and each one of us had a different journey but at the same time it really can be eye-opening for people and really you know you know put a put a um a good view of understanding that everybody is different and we're all different in our own way i think that's a really good point and it, it's kind of meeting people where they're at sometimes and what making lymphedema accessible for others to sort of be able to understand it and explain it in terms they understand. Cause you can usually tell when people are asking just kind of like, what happened to your leg, you know, and they're not really wanting the full <laughs> physiological rundown on what's going on with your leg. You could just explain like, oh, I have a lymphatic condition. My leg swells, you know, or you can kind of meet them where they're at so they can best understand. Um, chat, everybody's saying hello. And we have Fenton our our number one guy Fenton says happy swollen Tuesday everyone, which is funny because it's Fat Tuesday as you can tell by Sarah's Mardi Gras beads. She came to celebrate too. Love that. 
Well, Karen, what about from a, a therapist perspective, as far as caregivers, um, what has your experience been like too, as a therapist, like supporting patients um, in a way that, that makes them feel like that seen and understood? Cause you're such a compassionate and empathetic person as we all know from our evenings with you each month. But um, how do you kind of perceive what your patients need from you? Cause sometimes people need different things. They do. And um, I think that being challenged with a, a chronic condition can make it, um, it can make it very difficult to ask for what you need. And so that's a big part of what I do with my patients is really work on practicing and defining and being clear, because a lot of people just aren't used to asking for things and they feel funny about it, even with a therapist. So I think that I'm a good practice ground for people. And my hope is that it's going to make people feel more comfortable expressing what they need to their friends and their family and their loved ones. Um, because I think that that's, that's a basic human thing is to be able to own your needs and to be able to ask. So um, that that's a big thing in my clinic is really trying to empower people. Love that. Angela, you're always good about um, advocating for yourself and voicing your needs. I feel like you've, you've become really good at that. Do you have anything, any tips for, for the audience here, for those of us on the panel on how to speak up for yourself? My problem is that I speak up too much oh, and <laughs> I have to be, I have to be careful because unfortunately I've realized that I can be a whiner. So I have to be very careful not to overload family and friends and even people that I may meet in passing that um, like recently I had on a circuit wrap on my right leg and um, a, a woman was very curious and she said, well, what happened to your leg? And I could not resist saying I fell off a mountain. But anyway, I, <laughs> I corrected it after that. I'd been waiting to use that on somebody and she was the recipient. So I really have to be careful not to overload because it's very easy when you start talking about it to just go a little bit too far to the point where the person goes, God, I wish I hadn't asked her anything. <laughs> so, so, so my thinking about it is don't overload family and friends who care enough about us to support us and try to encourage us. I think that's a really good point because they're in a way living with it, with us. So we mm -hmm. do have to sort of be mindful of that and can't caregiver burnout is a real thing too. And so, uh, oh. <laughs> Sandy in the chat says, Angela, tell the next nosy person you're injured in a bar fight. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, Amanda, what about you? you Sorry, had to back on. I'm going to put you on the spot now, lady in red. Um, well, I guess one way to deal with it is just put it on social media. And then that way people ask you the questions. Um, I was very, I guess, in the closet with my condition for many, many years. I was young. I was like 20 when it happened. And I'm a secondary case. So it wasn't like I was genetically brought up with it. I went from living kind of more of a healthy life and then been afflicted with the condition. So I stayed very hidden and the lights were off and it kind of... <laughs> It was a huge problem. And then I guess I just turned it around. Um, I, I obviously did my bodybuilding, which was my coming out story because I worked really hard to get it down. Um, I think the biggest thing in the community is we get told that there's no cure and those words completely immobilize everybody from trying or doing or thinking that there's something that can be done. So when I went up on stage, that was my coming out story. And now I just think people want to love you for who you are, not what you are. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not necessarily lymphedema based. I, I think it can be with anything. It could be with any illness or any uncomfortable trauma that people have gone through. And I just think the more confident and open that you are about 
what you struggle with, it allows that opportunity for that person to either make the choice to stay and help or say, this is not for me and go the other way to, to, to be polite about it. Um, you don't want people who don't want to be around you one. Um, so with or without your condition, you don't need that extra burden. So I think it, and I think the worst of it is too, is like, let's say if you didn't have this condition and you didn't have to confront this condition, that person still has to like you for who you are with or without those warts and all. Right. So it's just a matter of learning how to embrace it. And that's a hard there's no lesson. There's no rule book because I surely wasn't a prime pupil, right? I can't sit here and say I didn't struggle because I totally did. But I think you just have to, it's part of your, your who, who you are now and what are you going to do going forward? But honesty is always the best policy. I, I think that's such a good point too about realizing that the people who love us, love us for who we are. I, I used to really struggle, especially in relationships, feeling um, going out in public, like, are they going to be embarrassed to be outside and seen with me if I have a compression garment or a swollen leg? And I really used to struggle with that. And it affected me a lot, like worrying about that. And knowing that I have people in my life, whether it's my boyfriend or my family or my friends, they're excited and happy to be out with me in public because they love me and we're having a good time. And it's not about my leg or what other people might think if they look at me or us all together, you know, and it's, it's hard to, to keep that in mind sometimes, but I think reminding ourselves that the people who love us, they love us, like they're here for us, you know, and we can't get caught up and get in our own way um, with those thoughts. And, Fenton, Fenton again in the chat with a with a zinger. He says, back to Angela's story. He said, when I was younger and with less couth, if someone asked what is wrong with your leg, I would respond, "What's wrong with your face?" I am more humble now. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. He's yeah, also very direct because I do I do know Fenton very well and for a very long time because he and I don't live that far away from each other. <laughs> so I'm not so sure that that that, that he's um, more humble now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to bring up the concept of lymphedema love language. Now, that could be uh, a really great shoe that's cute and comfortable. It could be using nice lotion during your MLD. But what are your all, if you have a lymphedema love language, what would you say it is? And people in the chat, too, feel free to chime in. What's your lymphedema love language? Soft. I'm going to go first. Yeah, go ahead. My lymphedema love language that I am working on is how I talk to myself. I think that is where it starts. So whether that out outpours into getting, you know, a bath or um, essential oils or working out in the gym or eating well for myself or putting compression on, the relationship that I have with me on the inside will set the tone for all of my other love languages. And I think it's easier to do the work when you talk kindly to yourself and again it's uh it's a daily struggle right like I think we get in our own ways actually I know I get in my own way um the only person that I'm up against is literally my fight against myself so if I could do one thing it's to love myself 100% and then everything else will take care of itself at least so I've been told <laughs> I love that what else I agree with Amanda on, you know, really, you know, being able to communicate with yourself about the, um, about your condition, because if you don't communicate with yourself and you can't accept it for yourself, how can you expect, expect anybody else to accept it for you? And that is, you know, it's a hard conversation to have with yourself, but at the same time, it's an important one because you need to love and respect yourself before anybody else can love and respect you. And to me, that is, it's, it's a hard conversation to have with yourself. And as you guys know, I love to say it. Sometimes you do have to have your little pity party every now and then about the fact that, you know, you have this, but at the same time, you still just really need to take that and run with it and really feel 
the importance. I know every month when I sign on here with, with all of you ladies, it is the best time of the month for me because I get to see all of you and communicate with everybody that's in our webinars because it is such an, uh, an amazing community that we have. And we, as the patients and clinicians, have really built that. And nobody has stopped us. And I don't think anybody is going to stop us because we have communicated the need that we have for this. Awesome, Catherine. We have in the chat too, a few love languages. Sandy says, orgasms are great for lymph flow. They are loving and healthful. Everybody get Valentine's. Elevated. Yeah, it's Valentine's. <laughs> Good time to get your great lymph way flow. Way to elevate your legs, everyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you have lower extremity, if you got upper extremity, I don't know what you do. Okay. <laughs> Adrian says, pretty compression garments are a way of expressing love for myself in my world. I love sleeves with patterns. These feel empowering as I've heard from the panel. Love that. <laughs> And oh, Susan says, hi, guys. Happy Chinese New Year of the Wood Dragon. Happy Chinese New Year to you, too, Susan. Back to Adrian, the panel. I absolutely love the fact that you're saying about the awesome compression garments because yeah. they are a lot of fun. And in all honesty, it kind of brings awareness to people who have no idea why you're wearing them. I'll never forget the students in my class one year. Because they said to me, Ms. Rosenberg, why are you wearing an athletic thing on your leg to work? I don't understand. So then I used it as an educational experience for my high school students. And it brought them to understand that just because, you know, we wear something, it doesn't mean that we can't do what we want to do in life. And that's an important thing to always remember that you have to shoot for your dreams, no matter how hard or far they seem, just because you have a medical condition doesn't mean you can't achieve them. That's so true. And as someone who's very, um, I'm a neutrals girl when it comes to my compression garments, but I do love seeing people in the colorful garments. And I so appreciate that you all are out there wearing the bright garments and everything because it is a good conversation starter. Oh yeah. Adrian just said, yes, I love the idea that we can use our compression to open the conversation regarding our condition and to educate others. It's a great way to do that. And so, and because not everybody is comfortable also like being out on social media, being really out about their lymphedema, but even just being out in public with your compression visible is an act of awareness. And I think that's so important. We all do our little parts and I think it's great. Um, Karen, Angela, Sarah, what are your lymphedema love languages? I mean, <laughs> I, was gonna ask, I don't want to jump in, you know, just like thinking of love languages, you know, I, I believe one is like, service and I, I kind of feel like you know the work I do like it's self-serving in a way I mean because I needed to fight for my own access to care and it was just doubly rewarding because what I could fight for would actually help others too and then and just to kind of go back to like friends and family I don't know if anyone else has, has has experienced this but having someone come to you and say they knew about lymphedema when they got diagnosed with it or when they were at risk for it because of the information you had personally shared I had a friend who thankfully she she doesn't have it yet, but she was she was telling me, she was like, Hey, I was getting my arms measured today and and they were talking to me about lymphedema. And I was like, I need you to back up a little bit. Why, why were you getting your arms measured? And they were discussing lymphedema with me. And she was like, Oh, did I not tell you I have breast cancer? And I was like, No, I missed that part. So, but it was good to know they were they were doing that, um, you know, measuring before she had any type of surgery. Um and she's someone who I know from another organization. So I, it was just, you know, very much like she, she's very much aware of what to look for and everything because of, you know, information that I've shared. Um, so, I mean, because we've always said this, no one knows when they might develop this. I mean, everyone's at risk. So um, talking about it might help someone, you know, who they it might be someone who thinks, oh, my gosh, she never shuts up about this. And then one day, oh, I'm so glad she never shut up about that because now I know about it. Exactly. That's such a good point, too. I, I think active service that's so encapsulates you and the work you do, Sarah, too. And I think a, a lot of us here, you know, it's by talking about it, you never know who's listening and who might connect those dots someday. And that might help them a lot. So I think that's a wonderful point. And, you know, just because, um, you know, we all um, know about what Sarah does in terms of the Lymphedema Treatment Act and everything that she's worked really hard to help us with, you know, it's super important to make sure that we share that with others because there's physicians that don't even know about the Lymphedema Treatment Act right now. 
And it is super, super important to really get them to understand what is available to lymphedema patients because this type of stuff was not available before. And it is going to really change the world of um, medical coverage, you know, over time for even just the private insurance companies. And that is going to be huge because I know a lot of people are not as lucky as I am with the health insurance that I have in terms of coverage. And I count my blessings every day. And honestly, I go to bed a lot of times thinking, why can't everybody have the same coverage that I have? Because it's not fair that one company pays for one thing and another company doesn't pay for that same thing for the exact same condition. And I know like we have that in the United States. And I mean, I don't know, Amanda, how your coverage works in Canada in terms of different things, because I know it's so different, you know, but it's, I always, it's I different always, provincially. Sorry, if people are wanting to know what happens in Canada, every province has a different policy. So that's, you know, that's like kind of like how we all have like a different insurance company, you know, but it's not fair that like one province can get one type of coverage and another one can't get that same coverage. It should be unified across the world. And that's, you know, my gut feeling is it shouldn't be just in the United States. It should be worldwide. Sarah, that's your next goal. Worldwide, what do you think? Well, you did bring up a topic that is actually our next goal coming up. Well, I mean, which is well, because so, I didn't know that. <laughs> no, so Catherine brings up a good. Uh, so, so one of the provisions of getting Medicare or any insurance really to cover garments is it has to be prescribed by a physician or you know someone who can prescribe. Um, and we've had a lot of people say my physician doesn't know anything about like what was we have patients asking, what should I ask my physician to write on the prescription pad? Um, and so, and then people are like, I have to go see my doctor, you know, about this because if, you know, if it's someone who's way out past their cancer treatment, they don't see an oncologist regularly. Um, you know, my primary care does it, but of course, usually, I mean, for most people who get them, we know like, the physical therapist, or occupational therapist sends stuff to the supplier and the supplier obviously sometimes like make sure they have all the information for your doctor to sign off on. But if a doctor actually wrote the prescription, it would probably not say everything that it needs to say. So we need to educate the doctors on, you know, knowing that not just that garments are available, but how to prescribe them, how to ideally recommend that patient, refer that patient to a therapist like Karen to actually get the treatment and then get into the garments that are best for them and not just write a prescription to go get some, I mean, they cover a standard fit, nothing against standard fit, but you want to make sure standard fit is what the patient needs because maybe that's not ideal for their situation. It's not just about the size, it's about the containment too. Um, so that is something we're looking forward is, you know, trying to um, educate the, the doctors the best they are. And we all know there's, there's Venus doctors, but there's really not doctors, doctors. We need to educate primary care doctors. Uh, you know, in my work, I know we need to educate um, doctors who are treating obesity and patients with obesity because they see this sometimes and they don't really realize what the care is. Um, so they need to be directed, you know, get the compression, like get them again with usually, I mean, I don't know. My experience is usually when someone asks me how to find, to find a doctor, I say, find a therapist and ask what doctors they work with. Because we all know that is really how it, it that's the, that's usually the way the map to find someone um, because we really need to make sure they're getting the, the the comprehensive you know overall care. And the big thing is is when you really look at the world of lymphology and you look for a medical doctor, there is so far few, few yeah. and far between who actually truly study lymphology, let alone you know, understanding all of the nooks and crannies of lymphedema. And I know in my area, there is a, a doctor who is phenomenal. She's actually been on with us before um, in Philadelphia and she's wonderful. Um, but not every person is lucky to have that. It was actually by pure mistake. I found her. And, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I know there's a doctor out in, I want to say Chicago, that's, um, but there's very far and few that are truly trained 
in lymphatics. And I know in November, we had talked about with Dr. Zhang about the medical education and the fact that they really don't even educate on the lymphatic system. And, you know, it's really an important system. It's probably one of the two top most important systems of the body, but we don't teach it. So how can we expect doctors or practitioners to even understand it if we don't educate about it? And that is super, that is a goal of mine to really push that to get into education. Because I know for me, I'm complicated. Um, I don't look like I'm complicated, but I'm complicated. And I know Fenton can agree with that. Um, so it's super important to really make sure that, you know, our medical students are seeing it. Because if we go to the emergency room with a cellulitis infection, they might not know why we have it. They might not understand what the cause is. And it could just be because of our lymphedema. And these doctors and residents don't understand it because they've never heard of it or never been educated on it. And we really need to push for that at this point. Yeah. We're getting a lot of talk in the chat too, both on this topic and some other topics as well. Um, and I want to make sure we get to everything. Um, oh my gosh, so much. But with a segue real quick, Valerie shared a, a, a funny story and then we'll get back to the serious conversation. But Valerie said in the chat, one time I was wearing my Velcro wraps with biker shorts at Aldi's grocery store and the younger cashier said she liked my thigh high boots. I said that they are not. I briefly explained what they were and she said that I was making a fashion statement. I said, well, not the one I want to make. All I could think of was Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman. We like mm -hmm. that. And um Natalie uh, is here with us tonight. It's her first time here at the round table. She's had lymphedema for 16 years. She's 29 years old this year, and she's just starting to talk about it. And she says, I feel empowered talking to you all. And we're so happy you're here with us tonight, Natalie, and everyone who's tuning in, whether it's your first time or your 44th time, if we've been on that long, I can't do math, <laughs> but we so appreciate you all being here with us tonight. And this conversation- Oh, actually, we're good for almost 44 times. We're pretty good. Okay, good. Thanks. You are the yeah. math teacher. Yes. <laughs> I was an English major, so I don't know, I don't know numbers. Same. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, now, getting, huh? We're close. We're probably about like 36. Okay. Well, we can round up. Yeah, um, we can estimate. Sandy had a good question in the chat and she said, she asked, what are good DSM numbers for prescriptions? If we can get that info in advance of seeing the doctor, we might make the process a bit easier for them. Now, Karen or Sarah, do you have any insights specifically into that kind of stuff or resources where people can find things that they could bring to their doctor or upload in their patient portals or something as a resource? I know that um, the, there's two common ICD-9 codes um, that I can drop into the chat. There's the I89.0, um, which is just general lymphedema. And um, then there's the breast cancer related um, lymphedema. I'll, I'll drop those in the chat. Um, so I think you bring up a good point though, is that it's really important to have a um, solid diagnosis from your doctor, because if you don't have a diagnosis of lymphedema, then lymphedema garments, why would they be covered? So that's that's a real critical thing. Um, uh, that's that's my little wisp of advice for for right now. Wisp and, of advice, I love that. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, and so um, I can share now. Or I can share it a little bit later, but yeah. So Medicare has specifically issued what lymphedema diagnosis codes. Karen did provide two of them. I think there's four or five that are specifically, but it's not just the diagnosis. That's the other issue, not just writing the prescription, but in order to show the medical medical nece necessity for garments, especially like for a custom garment, um, you, the information needs to be in your medical records. It could either be in your medical records at your doctor, or it can be in medical records at the occupational physical therapy um, notes. Um, but they would need that documentation. It won't just be like a letter of medical necessity. It needs to be where they have documented it. And I'll tell you, um, that's a concern for me because I obviously have, you know, lipedema, lymphedema in my arms, probably a combination of, of both. Um, and, but I've not really done anything or done anything to treat it because I've always was more worried about my legs. And so now I actually have the opportunity because the bill covers, uh, 
body area so I could actually get for both. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I really don't have much. So, I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to start off with my legs. And then as I see my doctor, and of course I do have a physical therapist, like mention more um, and discuss that um, because right now it's, I've never had, I mean, years and years ago, I had my arms wrapped, but I could not tolerate having my legs and arms wrapped at the same time. So I've just not done much because my legs are what get cellulitis and things like that. So even with this, I'm like, oh, I need to make sure there's some things being documented so that I can show that I need uh, some type of wraps or something for my upper extremities to start off with at least and see what I can tolerate. That's a good lead into a question we got in the Q&A box from Susan. She asked, how can we tell the difference between systematic lymphedema versus just lymphedema of a limb? I've been doing self-lymphatic drainage and was surprised at the reduction of fluid in my breasts and arms and belly. The vascular doctor said I only had lymphedema of the leg. Anyone on the panel have insights on that? How do you, how do you know if it's not just your limb that's affected. I can kind of speak a little bit to this because of it being, um, I believe I'm the only one on here, um, patient wise that has a central, that had a central lymphatic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't actually know I had a central lymphatic dysfunction until some of the signs and symptoms that were completely off the wall started happening, such as, in a course of 30 days, I gained 37 pounds and they were trying to figure out why. And eventually I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing to get them to image my central lymphatic system, which is the, the deep lymphatics um, that go all the way up through the top of your neck uh, to the base of your neck where, where, your, um, where your lymphatic system dumped into the venous system. And they... Honestly, I believe Penn decided that they were going to just image me to shut me up, um, not expecting what they were going to find. And it really um, was definitely um, a surprise eye opener for them and because they weren't expecting it. And I mean, when I say crazy symptoms, we're talking my estrogen level was crazy and I'm post hysterectomy, so it shouldn't be crazy. I had weight gain. And I was hurting after I would eat. And that's how they knew that I had a central lymphatic dysfunction. I'm a pediatric cancer survivor with radiation to my left lower extremity and groin area only. So one would never have expected that to happen. So, and it happened 33 years after my initial lymphedema diagnosis. Jeez. Right. So it yeah. like nobody would have expected that to happen i mean these guys who are on the panel if you go back and look at our old um videos you can just look at the at the picture montages from probably september of 2021 all the way through now and just look at how my face has changed it really has gone from i was very very swollen and barely able to breathe at times to now my face is long and 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 very thin and really changed a lot and it's really impressive but you have to know that you have to see some sort of medical doctor to get that testing done and i was very privileged to be able to have university of penn basically in my backyard and i had heard from a former um, panel member of ours that they had offered this testing. And he was like, he was like, you got to push for it. You got to push for it. So I did, and I did, and I did. And finally they just did it. <laughs> I'm going to pop in the chat, like I do every month, um, some resources to find therapists. Um, and we'll send it out obviously in the replay as well, but always a good place to, to start when looking for um, uh, treatment by you. Um, cause we're getting a lot of comments in chat. Tina made a really, uh, sad, but true point. She says our health system told me flat out is not a good cost effective area of medicine to find a provider for this. And unfortunately that's true. There's not a lot of money in lymphedema therapy for, for therapists as far as incentives. So it's hard sometimes to find treatment. Um, and Lori Pelnitz said in the chat, 
There needs to be more done for lymphedema patients that are homebound and can't be seen by anyone. I've been trying for months to get a therapist to see me at home, and because I am not mobile right now, I can't find PTs or OTs who will see me at home. I haven't been able to get garments or a pump, and I am lucky enough to have a primary care GNP who knows lymphedema and lipedema. We're so sorry, Lori. And that's, yeah, go ahead, Sarah. Can I speak to this? Because yeah. I mean, this is something, I mean, Lori, Lori knows me. We're friends on Facebook. Yeah. Um, so I currently do have a, a physical therapist who comes to my home and it started in, in 2020. Um, and what is, and, and I honestly, you know, Medicare and, you know, this, the homebound definition to me, any lower extremity patient is homebound when they have their legs wrapped. I, I don't think it should be determined that you don't go out for anything else because it is too dangerous, especially when you have both limbs to be driving. I mean, most of the time my wraps would be off before I even got to the car, but here's the medical policy. I am required to see my primary care doctor face-to-face -face every three months in order to continue my home care that I can only get if I'm homebound and only go out for medical appointments. But I'm like, but you already know it's difficult for me to get out of my house for things, yet you require me to go see someone face-to-face -face for no other reason. My doctor, like, I get cellulitis, I don't see her face-to-face. -face. We message in the portal. She trusts me to do, you know, um, antibiotics, you know, and I send her pictures to, if there's any questions of, about the progression or anything. So if I can manage cellulitis without having to see her face-to-face, why do I have to go see her face-to-face -face just to check a box to say, yeah, you need to continue? She gets the therapist notes. It, it, it just, it makes no no sense. Um, and I saw that this was also brought up because Fenton's mentioned um, mobile therapy. So I, and I just learned this at NLN and I don't know if Karen has heard this. There are some clinics that they're, it's not considered home care. It's considered mobile, just like, and I don't mean to make the, the, I apologize for making a comparison to pet. But you know how they have like mobile groomers who bring their grooming van out to the thing and they still can, you know, so this is someone who can bring, they consider a mobile PT clinic, not home care. So not Medicare part A, but Medicare part B because it's would be outpatient care, but they actually come to your home. Um, I think that's kind of genius idea um, because there's so many other restrictions around part A home care um, that don't exist if you're outpatient. So um, yeah, but I, I fully agree. And Lori, I know we have lipedema and lymphedema, not necessarily obesity, but this is the reason I fight so hard in the obesity world, because we need those types of accommodations for people to get care, period. It doesn't matter what, what the reason is behind your size, your lack of mobility. This is what you know we need. So, and you guys thought I only knew about compression. <laughs> Can I also just speak a word on top of that as well, too? Because even though that I'm up in Canada, our province has zero coverage. And uh, I've been a full-time single parent for 17 years and counting. So I actually didn't pay for any of my medical supplies. I paid for food. So I ended up doing a lot of stuff at home. And even if you are, you know, very limited, deep breathing exercises, still trying to stretch if you're in bed, still trying to do what you can do. Um, look at different ways that you can eat and get proper nutrition. Um, I think even though that you have limitations, everybody has a brick wall up against them, but there is there has to be things that you can do, hopefully in the comfort and the care of your own home. Um, even if you do have a person that is gonna come help you, learn together, figure out things that you can do versus what you can't. Because like I said, for myself, sure, I might be only unilateral. I was bedridden uh, for a period of time and had to do all my stuff from bed too. So um, just a word of hope to people that, yeah, everything is really, really difficult. But deep breathing, you've got to breathe or else you wouldn't be here. Uh, learning how to do some techniques, you know, clearing out that abdominal region, just don't lie there and do nothing. Do something because it's going to help you in the long run and, and practice it every single day. I think that's the other thing that people, or at least I, I struggle with, well, maybe not as much anymore, but that concept of doing your habits every day is doing your habits every day. 
I don't think there's anybody that sits on this panel that skips a beat. And if we do, we end up paying for it twice as bad the next day. Um, I know Angela, she's fantastic at staying on routine and regime when she's back and forth from going to South Carolina. And I always forget the other place that she goes to. Nuts. Um, same thing with Catherine. Um, Sarah is a huge advocate for that. Same thing with Alexa. I think every person that stands around in this condition, those habits are so forming. And once you get really good at just the basics, then you get better and you can do a little bit more. Um, but like I said, there's always something that can be done. So even though that you might not have those resources, don't just lay there and take it. Fight back with everything you can. That kind of reminds me, I'm in the recovery community as well. And there's a saying that, you know, you have to stay vigilant because your your addiction is waiting in the parking lot doing push-ups. And I feel like lymphedema is the same way. It's waiting there, mm-hmm. it's doing push-ups and it's waiting to knock you out. So you have to, you have to be um, vigilant. Like Amanda said, unfortunately, a lot of the burden of, of care of this condition lies on us as the patients, which is really tough sometimes, but um, if you build those those habits, it, it does help. Um, Valerie said in the chat, my insurance company won't cover compression thigh highs because they say they are disposable, like a Band-Aid. Yes, they don't last forever, but I need them for maintenance. Sometimes I want to stop wearing them, fill back up, and have to go back to OT. That costs the insurance company thousands of dollars. Compression thigh highs are more cost-effective. I'm hoping this new Lymphedema Treatment Act will reach my insurance company. She did the fingers crossed emoji. Yeah, Catherine. So my, my question in regards to that comment is are they actually looking at actual compression garments for lymphedema or are they more looking at a um like a ted like those white ted stockings because that sounds like it's more of the white ted stocking which are not for lymphedema so because i kind of find it very strange karen i'm sure you could comment on that that they would say that a thigh high is not needed I think, you know, it's all individual. And um, I want to just echo what Catherine said about Ted Hose. Um, those are anti-embolism stockings. And they're meant to be worn when people are not mobile, when they're lying in bed. Um, they don't provide adequate compression when people are moving around. So um, I urge you to um, get with a lymphedema therapist, certified fitter, someone who can help you get the equipment that you need that is personalized to you. And that's a good segue to uh, one of the questions we got in the Q&A box from Rachel Smith. She asked, what's the difference between a night garment and a day garment? I wear my compression stocking all day, every day, but don't wear anything at night when I go to bed. This is probably one of our top questions each month on the round table. And we love to talk about our night garments. (laughs) The simplest answer, and uh, everybody obviously can jump in, but the night garments are more of those, those thicker quilted, kind of look like oven mitts a little bit, um, and they're to wear overnight, um, keep you contained. Anybody want to jump in with a more technical answer than oven mitts that you wear at night? (laughs) I consider nighttime garments, whether they be your quilted garments, garments or compression bandages, something that gives you a bit more um, rigidity or stiffness versus your daytime garments, which may be more flexible, easier to move in. Um, But I think nighttime compression can be a variety of things, not just the quilted garments alone. Mm -hmm you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. I like the idea of calling them um, active and inactive garments because Mm -hmm. some patients like myself who are typically in bed most of the day might just wear whatever their nighttime garment is because I'm not up and moving around. If I were to have my daytime garments on while I'm not as up and active, they start to pinch. And I know there was someone who um, one time when they were flying, they, um, I think they fell asleep on their flight with their, you know, daytime garment on. And they were like, they were upset because they had fallen asleep with their daytime garment. And they wondered if they had like done something wrong. And it was kind of like, no, no, you're, you know, like, you're okay. It was just, you know, those terminologies. And and I've seen those questions asked easily with this coverage because you know, there's a def- different frequency um, for the daytime and the nighttime. And, P- and suppliers like, well, they tell me they wear them during the day. And, and I know 
um, when I was really well managed and I had access to it, well, it, it wasn't, I had access to the custom garments I needed and a full set of capris and knee highs. I don't think I've ever actually gotten the frequency I was supposed to get. But anyways, I was managed enough that um, my legs didn't really rebound at night. So I had um, I had one for my left that I actually traveled with because, of course, flying, you know, would make it that worse. But um, there was a time where, you know, I didn't require them. So not, you know, just if someone's worried, you know, not every patient might might need them. But um, certainly they have explained kind of what the difference are. Hi, Catherine. I see your hand. And the other thing is, is there is also two different types of um, like oven mitt types of garments. There's the one that is more that I know Karen loves because it's really great for fibrosis with the chip foam in there. But there is another one that is not necessarily as strong per se in terms of containment. So if you so you really need to work with your therapist to really know what nighttime garment is best for you and your condition because what works for me may not work for Alexa which may not work for Amanda may not work for Angela or Sarah or we all do it differently and I even sometimes will sleep with my velcro wraps on my leg because they are safe to utilize at nighttime you just can't have them pulled crazy tight um you know but different you know in different doctors have different protocols so you really kind of got to go with what your therapist and your doctor is saying for you to utilize at nighttime if you need it because some patients don't need to use nighttime garments and that's something that we have to kind of keep in mind because you know why use something if you don't actually require it to, to stay maintained it's is it worth is it worth having possibly but at the same time if you don't need it why need to utilize it and worry about, oh my God, did I put that on? When I'm maintaining with just sleeping regularly with my legs flat, then do I really need a nighttime garment? And that's something to really kind of consider. It's a good thing to bring up. And we're getting a lot of questions in the Q&A box. So if anyone on the panel, I see some questions in the Q&A box that are kind of tailor-made for some folks on the panel. Uh, Catherine, I'm looking at you for one of them mentioning central lymphatic dysfunction. But if anyone sees something that they feel particularly moved to speak on, please jump in because we've got it's 8:52 already, which is crazy. So I want to. So Alexa, sure you, you want me to answer that central lymphatic dysfunction one? I can. Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> can so, you read the question uh, too. Yeah. So um, in order um, to, um, to to actually control my central lymphatic dysfunction. I actually had a surgical procedure that actually did a um, lymphovenous anastomosis of my thoracic duct up into my external jugular vein and bypassed where I had my obstruction and created a new pathway in order for the flow to actually happen. Um, and I can tell you more recently, we can tell that it is working. It's going to be in July. It'll be two years ago that I had it done. Um, and it was probably the most, um, it was long. They did struggle a little bit to get into my thoracic duct when they did it. Um, but the, luckily the interventional radiologist did not give up on me and he kept, he kept going and going and going until he got in and he finally got in and then they did, um, the procedure and it's basically the same kind of procedure that you hear about when they do the lymphovenous anastomosis in either the arm or the leg. It's just depending on what uh, lymphatic vessel that um, they're using. And your, your uh, thoracic duct is actually the, Karen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Uh, it's the biggest lymphatic vessel in the body um, in terms of thickness and length. Um, and it is where everything drains through in order to get out of your body through the venous system. So I was obstructed way up here. So in order for them to actually do the thoracic duct um, lymphovenous anastomosis, my obstruction had to be above my collarbone. So thinking of somebody like me who is diagnosed with lower extremity lymphedema for 33 years, all of a sudden I'm obstructed all the way up here. Kind of seems very strange, you know, but you know what? Our bodies are all different 
And, you know, we have to really listen to our bodies. And that's what I did. And I pushed and pushed and pushed. So, but one of the things is that they do is they use imaging to guide this procedure. And you have to meet this, the criteria in order for them to be able to do it. So one of the big criteria is your obstruction has to be above your collarbone in order for that to happen. Thank you, Catherine, for answering that one. You are a resident central gal, so <laughs> <laughs> we so appreciate when you share your experience. Um, Susan asked in the Q&A box, my ankle cuff swells up and bruises easily and feels itchy, pain gets very painful. The tissue feels fragile when the area swells. Is this trying to become cellulitis? Can we get kind of a definition of cellulitis as well as maybe some insights? Because again, we're not, you know, your doctor, Susan, but anyone have experience or insights to share on that topic? Well, I see a lot of cellulitis. I um, probably send um, dozens of patients to the emergency room or urgent care every year. Um, and cellulitis is basically an infection on a cellular level. So this can happen in individuals who have swelling because this fluid that's backed up that isn't um, moving properly unless we take action, um, if it gets stuck in an area, it's not just water. Lymph fluid is made up of um, dead cells, bacteria, viruses, even cancer. And so it's very important that we keep the lymph system flowing and, and keep um, uh, the, the whole purpose of the lymph system is to deal with all of this garbage, all of this waste. So what can happen is um, uh, people with lymphedema are 71 times more likely to develop a cellulitis infection than those without chronic swelling. So we need to be vigilant about it. And the signs of swelling are redness, pain, heat, and an increase in swelling in a focal part. So a lot of people uh, get concerned because um, people with vein disease, for instance, have redness, heat, pain, and swelling in their lower legs, but it's on both sides. And it's something that doesn't change. A cellulitis infection is something that can change very rapidly. It can change within hours. And so my advice is, um, if you're not sure, have a doctor check it out. Any anytime you have symptoms like that, because the treatment is antibiotics immediately. And I've had patients actually have to be hospitalized because they waited too long and the infection took over the entire body and they had to be on IV antibiotics for days. Mm -hmm. So it's something that you don't want to mess around with. You want to really be on the outlook for these symptoms and have a medical professional check it out. Now, Lori has a good follow-up question to that. Is it safe to do MLD or other massage when you have cellulitis? Oh, that is such a great question. You do not want to move infections. So using MLD, using a pump um, is not advised when there's an acute infection. However, um, once you've been on antibiotics for several days, I would say a minimum of three to four days, then um, moving that fluid, moving those wastes is a good idea because as the reigning self-crowned fibrosis queen, I see a lot of people with post-cellulitis fibrosis where the cellulitis wastes have kind of knit together and formed this gluey plaque. So yes, you definitely want to get it moving after the infection is under control. You can wear compression in an acute um, infection. So that's, that's okay, but I wouldn't do a lot of exercise or anything that's gonna move fluid rapidly um, until you've been on antibiotics for three or four days. That's a really good point. We actually had someone in the chat just now, Dr. Samir Muhammad, she says, hi, I'm a lymphy and a doctor. Keep Keflex around if you can. And as soon as you see red or warmth, start the antibiotic. And that's something where I'll, I'll advise patients who have repeat infections to have a, a prescription that's filled 
ready because if it's the weekend and you start to come down with something, the last thing you want to do is have to go to ER, you know, where, where all the car crash victims are. Um, you know, you can start taking it and then call your doctor Monday morning and say, I did this. Can you check it out? Um, and also it's a good idea to have some prescription antibiotics with you when you're traveling in case you're in, in an unknown city um, and have to end up in an ER there. And I've seen patients say their doctors won't prescribe them antibiotics to keep on hand. I have often shared, um, it's, I don't know if I can pull up the link quick enough. Maybe I can send it to you, Alexa. To, but the um, International Lymphedema Framework has a whole like document regarding um, care and they have a section about cellulitis and it states there two things. It states what type of antibiotics are good, especially if there's someone who might be allergic to penicillin. So it lists the type of antibiotics to try. It lists when hospitalization versus at home. And then it clearly states that patients should be allowed to keep antibiotics at hand because time is of the essence and we need to start them as soon as possible. So That's sometimes I recommend people give that document because it's a medical document to yeah. their doctors to maybe convince them like, yes, you should let me keep these at home because waiting for an appointment or even waiting you know, Karen mentioned hours. If you go to the emergency room and you're sitting there for hours, that you can, it can just, I, I developed cellulitis once. I was supposed to be having surgery and they came and took my temperature. It was like 99.4. And I was like, I feel, I mean, literally, I was like, I feel fine. And they're like, okay. Then the surgeon had some delay. And next thing you know, I started chills. I was mm -hmm. like, oh no, I knew what was happening. And when they came back to check it, when they were ready, it was already 101 point something. They're like, well, you're not having surgery, you're going to go and have some IV antibiotics. I mean, that quickly. Um, so yeah, we, we have to advocate and demand that we're able to, to keep antibiotics because it really can, um, you know, it's very important. Please send me that link and I'll include that in the replay. I know we're already a few minutes over the hour, but we'll keep chatting a little bit to wrap this up. I see Catherine's hand raised. So go ahead, Catherine. Just keep in mind, just because some people get a temperature with cellulitis, doesn't mean that everybody is going to. I can tell you from firsthand experience, I literally had a cellulitis infection about two weeks ago, wound up going to the ER, and I didn't see a doctor for about five hours. By the time, you know, I, I got there, by the time I actually left my house, got to where I needed to go, and then waited for to get, because unfortunately the hospital I needed to go to was a trauma center, and there was some major issues going on. And you know, by the time, like, like I drew, I outlined the redness on my leg before I left my house so that this way we could track what kind of redness I was having, how far it was spreading and how quickly it was spreading. So, but I did not have a fever. My temperature was 96.9. So just because Sarah gets a fever doesn't mean that you're going to get a fever because I don't typically get a temperature when I have cellulitis. So and that's something to really kind of keep in mind that everybody's symptoms are different. So you really have to advocate for yourself and really explain to an emergency room provider or your doctor that, you know, yes, I have an infection. Here's the reasons why, but I may not have your, your total, mm -hmm. your true tale, every single symptom that's on that list. Yeah. That's always a good reminder. We say this every month that just because something works for one person with lymphedema. It doesn't always work for everyone. Just because someone has this symptom doesn't mean it's the same. So that's always the recurring theme um, that we have here. Um, as I'm doing the outro, I wanted to do a, just a little, a little prompt. You know, we've been trying this lately at the end of the hour. I wanted to ask the audience, if you could pop into the chat, what are some ways that you show yourself and your lymphedema some love? What are self-care or things you do to take care of yourself or your lymphedema that just makes you feel good? And I'd love if you could pop those in the chat as I go through um, the rest of this info that we have in our little wrap-up, because time really flew with all of us. <laughs> Sarah, this is your first time on our panel. This probably, it went fast, huh? Yes. <laughs> um, also, Sarah, you shared a link in the chat, but it went to host. Can you share it to everyone? Oh. Yes. Um, yeah. And it'll go any links. I'll make sure are out in the replay when that is sent out. Um, and uh, Leela had a really great little note in the chat. And she said, what a powerful meeting with panel question and answers and chat. The conversations are so educational and empowering. I truly love this meeting monthly. 
And we love all of you being here with us monthly. We have a really exciting month next month because it's March, which is Lymphedema Awareness Month. It's our time to shine, everybody. So we hope you'll join us there. We are here every second Tuesday of the month at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you can't make it live, as you know, we've got the replays up on our YouTube channel, the Lymphedema channel, as well as on our podcast, the Lymphedema Podcast, where you can listen to audio versions of our dulcet tones, whether you're pumping or moving your lymph or just doing dishes, you can listen to us wherever you are. Um, and we actually have a special webinar next month too that Karen, Catherine, Angela, Amy Rivera, and I will be doing on travel with lymphedema. So that's another hot topic we usually get each month. And we're gonna be doing a comprehensive deep dive on all of our travel tips. So be sure to look out for information on that webinar once we have that posted to join us. Uh, everybody in the chat is saying happy Valentine's Day and we wish you the same. We're so chuffed that you spent Valentine's Day Eve with us, your Galentines. Uh, Leela says happy Valentine's Day. Make sure you give yourself extra love tomorrow. We agree you should give yourself extra love all the time. Uh, and just scrolling through the chat's going so fast. If we didn't get to your questions, I'm, I always take note of them. We'll try and address them next month. So be sure to join us. We hope you all have a lovely evening and a great rest of your February. Thanks all for being with us tonight. And Sarah, thank you for being our special guests. We really appreciated it. Yeah. Night, everybody. Amanda with your fancy zoom effects. We never <laughs> how do you get those every time? <laughs> I have them too because it's on a Mac. You have to update your you have a Mac oh, OS. I'm on a PC. Yeah. yeah. Just imagine. <laughs> Left heart. <laughs> good night, everybody. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Lymphedema Patient Roundtable podcast. You can watch the video on TLC, the Lymphedema channel on YouTube, or on Instagram IGTV at lympha underscore press. For information on the most advanced pneumatic compression therapy in the world, visit lymphapress.com.